Hello and welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And this week, we're visiting the Cape. Cape Fear. <laughs> Stupid. From 1962 with Robert Mitchum and Gregory Peck. Before we get started, how was your weeks? Because um, we had a surplus and then we used them all up. Yes, my week has been, uh, my weeks have been actually really kind of busy and so much so that I don't really remember what I've done during them. I know that I've been out and I've had good times. Um, but yes, I'm a little bit under the weather this morning, this after, this evening, rather. Evening, good it's Lord. Evening. So I don't quite, um, I'm not quite up to remembering what I've gotten up to. Okay, so it must have been but very how good. are you feeling? I am really tired, which so I must have had a lot of fun. Yeah, that must be what it is. So what about you? Tired because of bullshit reasons like bronchitis. Yes. So what happened? (laughs) I got bronchitis. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I thought I might have COVID, but it didn't present as COVID. And then I coughed and coughed and coughed forever and ever. And then the doctor on the video chat said, "You look too good for COVID," and it was the nicest thing anybody had ever said to me. And then I had a COVID test. After I took two at-home COVID tests that both said, you don't have COVID, and then the hospital said, you don't have COVID, and then they said, go get a chest x-ray, and they said, oh, you also don't have pneumonia, I guess you have bronchitis, there's nothing we can do about it, go home. (laughs) So, yeah, and then the next day I started feeling a little bit better, I was very, very sick for about 10 days, and then um, I'm going to have a cough. For the future of ever. Uh, the internet says up to eight weeks. So, yay. So, we haven't been recording because I couldn't speak. Right. That was a, a serious very issue. long. <laughs> yeah. And there might be some... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do... I'm going to edit around it. But what I right. couldn't do was cough my way through an hour of episode yes. and then edit that. Like, I didn't have it in me. <laughs> I just didn't want to do it. So, we are... Catching up, we are hoping to record two t- two things tonight, back to back. Ooh, behind the curtain, peeking to see if we still can keep our little um, buffer. Right. We've watched two movies. Normally, we don't do that because sometimes it gets confusing. But this movie and the next movie, are they're very, very different. different. So we were able to do it. So this movie. Now, we should give you a warning ahead of time, mm-hmm. the audience members. Um. Hide your wife, hide your kids, hide your husband, because they're, they're raping everybody. They're raping everyone. <laughs> yes. This I, I hadn't really realized until I saw it again that this is a very rape-heavy movie. The threat of it, the uh, yeah. there's a constant sexual, uh, there's a tension of sexual assault, and there's actual sexual assault, yes. which, being that it's 1962, happens mostly off-screen. Yes. Um, but if that. And uh, pet murder bothers you. Oh yeah. Also, the dog dies, y'all. The dog dies. Um, you this um, this might be difficult for you. Yes. And you've said that Robert Mitchum has played bunches of heroes, and I've mm. seen him in two films. Right. The two films that I've seen him in, we're going to talk about on this ep- on this show. Uh, this time, we're talking about Cape Fear, and the other one that I've seen him in is. Night of the Hunter. Right. So all I know of Robert Mitchum is he's a deeply terrifying man that I never want to spend any time with. Now, that's the actor, like the, the, the character. Performance, right. Um, 
I feel like Robert Mitchum was a real cool dude, and I would like to smoke weed with him. He's right. dead now. I cannot do that. But I feel like he was a real cool dude, and he would. He was not. Hopefully, we have not heard to the contrary. Uh, actually, some sort of uh, horrible sex past, unlike the star of our previous film. So, we hope. I mean, he's a white man, so that that facade could become crumbling down at any moment. Not to say it's only white men, but it's a lot of white men. Uh, they like to use their power for all manner of bullshit. So, this movie, we start, and it's Gregory Peck, and he's arguing the law. Which I in, find to be... In a way that was not reminiscent at all of the last time we saw, I saw him arguing the which law. Which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. This is the role he completed before. This mm-hmm. is the last part he did before he did To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And okay. so I always assumed it was afterwards, and he was just carrying that sort of gravitas yeah. forward. But no, this no. is... And he's... um. This is before. He's not a bad lawyer. He, we don't see him a lot in the courtroom. Um, but he's not the inspiring... He's not Atticus Finch. He, he, he philosopher mm-hmm. that he is in To Kill a Mockingbird, certainly. And one of the things that is tricky about this film, if you are a person who believes in criminal justice reform, which I do. I am against the carceral system, and I believe in criminal justice reform. Ooh. Robert Mitchum's character makes some good points. The police in this film do harass him. Does he deserve it? Yup. He is definitely the bad guy. But they are acting out of pocket and irresponsibly. And when they got called out for it, I'm like, Oh, he's right. <laughs> like, I hate it, but he is. Like, they are harassing him. He's an ex-con, and they're using that to harass him and try and chase him out of town. Now, is he extraordinarily dangerous? Yes. Is he dangerous anywhere he goes? Yes. So chasing him out of town is really a... It's like the leaf blower solution. I'm just going to make this somebody else's problem, uh, which is not ideal either. Um, he is he is one of the people who I would argue should be locked up away from people forever, along with his buddy Telly Savalas from a different movie. Telly Savalas is in this as well. He's not terrible. He is, but... <laughs> I was like, when he showed up, I was like, oh no, another rapist on the loose. No, he is not in this. He is just a private dick, private eye in a hat, as he was wont to do. All right. You want to start at this movie? Start start at the start? Oh, I'm on the wrong place. That's my confusion. So this movie came out. In April of 1962, it premiered, weirdly, in Miami on April 12th of 1962. Not a lot of film premieres in Miami, but this uh, does take place, I believe, in Florida, right? Well, it takes place firstly in southeast Georgia and okay, then Georgia. moves to Florida for Florida. the very end. Okay, so it's Which is, sort of right on the It's based on a novel by um, John McDonald yes. called The Executioners. Who, which was originally bought by one of your favorites. Right. It was it was uh, supposed to be produced by Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, that's not who I meant. Oh. Um, 
I had seen that it had been um, purchased by Cornell Wilde. Oh, really? I didn't know that part. He acquired the rights mm-hmm. uh, for the book for for thirty thousand dollars in nineteen fifty eight. Gregory Peck had his own production company in partnership with Cy Bartlett. They made our favoriteest big country and a movie called Pork Chop Hill, which I presume is about World War One. No, it's Korea. Oh, is it Korea? Okay, mm-hmm. but it is a war movie. Yeah, uh, and then they purchased the right. So they were going to make it after the guns of Navarone, and that is how they got the director on this, because right. the director of this movie is also the director of the guns of Which Navarone. I did not know that the guns of Navarone was taken on short notice, that mm. uh, J. Lee Thompson um, took the film on like a five-day notice uh, when the original director was fired, and in this case... Uh, Alfred Hitchcock had gotten so far as doing the storyboards for this film. Mm. And then, yeah, that's not anywhere in the development right. um, part in Wikipedia. So and know. then um, having been left with the, the, the storyboards and the opportunity to work with essentially Bernard Herrmann, who composed a lot of the music for the, um, the Hitchcock films, including things like The Birds and right. Psycho, uh, he decided to just go on and do the film partly based on the storyboards and partly based on his own ideas about the film. Got you. But, um, but yes, uh, apparently the Peck thought that a film with a geographical title does really well. That was his reasoning. Interesting. Like Casablanca, right? People the Executioners is not a good title for the film. I have not read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would argue that that would be a terrible title for the film that we watched. It right. just I think if I had watched a movie called The Executioners and saw Cape Fear, I'd be like, why the fuck did you call this that? Right. The, the John McDonald, for those who don't read a lot of mysteries, he's very famous inside the mystery world. Okay. He invented a character named Travis McGee, who's a private detective, and there's a couple of film versions of his work, and it's mm. been played by people like Rod Taylor and Sam Elliott. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a really good film called Darker Than Amber about uh, that character. But uh, he was very influential on mysteries in general. Got you. So uh, this is one of the, the works that isn't related towards that. Right, because specific... I would argue that this is not really a mystery. No, they, it's not. There's, there's a benefit of the doubt at the beginning given to whether or not Max Cady, who is Robert Mitchum's character, Mm-hmm. is guilty of all of the things that we think he's guilty of. Right. But by the end of the movie, there's not a question to to that. He did all the... He killed the doc. <laughs> he did kill the doc. Um, so Telly Savala screen tested for the Max Cady role. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, but did not get it. Uh, maybe it was they thought it was going to be typecasting after uh, the suicide... Not the suicide squad. <laughs> the dirty dozen. Uh... Which was before this, right? Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, no. Hold on. Nope, I lied. So he just didn't get it. (laughs) Uh, Because this was five years before The Dirty Dozen. And Robert Mitchum actually was like, no, no, thank you. No, I, no, mm -mm, not gonna do that. He's real gross and terrible. And uh, 
he did finally accept it after Gregory Peck and the director brought him flowers and a case of bourbon because he's a simple man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Haley Mills was originally eyed for the uh, role of the daughter. Oh, wow. But she had already, um, she was in something else and she was unavailable. And I will say that the the big difference between the Scorsese version of this film and this mm-hmm. version of this film. Well, there's a lot of big differences. Nick Nolte is no Gregory Peck. That's a wild casting decision. Right. Although, apparently, this is the year that I think Nick Nolte was, uh, was People's Sexiest Man Alive, right. which, excuse me, People Magazine, excuse me, um, I'm not trying to be a a harpy bitch here, but Nick Nolte was the best you could do? Mm, I don't think you were looking around very hard. Uh, Denzel Washington existed at this time. What the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, that's ju- I'm just spitballing. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to... Nick Nolte? No. No. Mm-mm. I don't often agree or i often don't agree necessarily with the sexiest man of the year but um that's really a swing and a miss <laughs> but the daughter role in the scorsese film is played by an older and i don't want to say precocious <laughs> but more precocious would be the word i would yeah, use. maybe precocious she's like 16 or 17 uh-huh. she's probably 15 in in the uh, remake, and it's Juliette Lewis, and she is a sexual being mm. already. That is not the case with the young lady in this um, film. Now, in 1962, was the teenager a sexual person? Probably. But in film, probably not. <laughs> so the, the gist of the film is that years earlier... So yeah, I will. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't want to. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go into. I'll, like we can do the plot now, but I wanted right. to just make yeah. that distinction. Um, so we we open with Gregory Peck in court, and then he is accosted a little bit by Max Cady, uh, that is Robert Mitchum, who is an ex-convict, and a lot of the synopsis synopses of this film say that he is targeting Gregory Peck, who was the defense attorney who put him away, or the um, prosecutor that put him away. That is not the case. Gregory Peck was a witness. Right. It, his his job, other than allowing him access to the police, doesn't have anything to do with his beef with Mac, Max Cady. Uh, Gregory Peck's character, whose name is... Sam Bowden. Sam... But Which is a great Western kind it of thing. It really is. I'm like, you're wearing some low slung. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need you to be in a hat. Max is in a hat. Sam is almost never in a hat. Uh, he walked in on the offense, stopped it, and then testified against Max Katie which got him put in jail for eight years for sexual assault and other forms of assault as well. Because he is a... Uh, He's a violent rapist. Yes. It is not... Mm, we're going to go to trigger warning territory. So I watched um, the documentary about the Golden State Killer, uh-huh. and I read the book that Michelle McNamara wrote. And 
One of the infuriating things about how rape was understood and written about and even in in police terms um, prior to the 1990s, probably, uh, the Golden State Killer is constantly referred to as a gentle rapist, which is vile. It is, well, it's just sex that you didn't want to have. It's not violent. Of course it's violence. It's violence. It's, uh, yeah. So it, that is not the case here. He's not just forcibly uh, sexually assaulting women. He's also beating them uh, and chasing them. Like, that is, that violence and their fear is what he is after. We see that later. Right. And one of the interesting things that you'll see about this and also about his later part in, in uh, which was from an earlier film, yes, actually, right. <laughs> uh, is that he is both attractive to women, and in this particular case with, with Max Cady, he's attractive to them, but even if they willingly submit to him, that's not what he that's wants. That's not what he wants. Um, because he does have a dalliance with a woman mm-hmm. who's a sort of a drifter. Um Picks her, he picks her up at a bar. She's with somebody else. He picks her up anyways. Um, and she knows he's dangerous. She's right. not an idiot. Uh, but she feels like, oh, and, and this has probably been her experience with other dangerous men in her life. Right. If I submit, because I, I am attracted to him, right. that keeps me safe. But that is not the case. No. Because we do see later she... There is a scene where it is very clearly after that they have had some sort of physical right. intimacy. She's asleep in the bed, and he comes in stalking her, basically. And then we see her having right. been beaten. And that's and one of the things escaped. that yeah. John McDonald was famous for was in the 1950s when he was writing, when he started writing, he began to introduce the element of rather than as I read one reviewer say, a mustache-twirling villain. Right. He began to explore the psychology of what, yeah. why people are this way or yeah. what they do. And so he's, his, his take on it is that Max Cady is a sociopath. Sociopath, absolutely. He's not a psychopath, and, he's a sociopath. Right, he is very much in the book The Executioners. He's like a throwback to some sort of Stone Age kind of, you know primal creature that just acts on instinct mm-hmm. and, and wants revenge. He's all id. Right, exactly. Yeah. And he feels, he also is, you know, there's there's racial elements to mm-hmm. it too. Because he's a white man, he feels like he's entitled to certain things. Right. Um, we don't see that actively in the film, but if you, I feel like if you, if you pulled out and watch more of his life, mm-hmm. There's there's no way that he isn't racist. Right. And doesn't even if the black man next to him is a judge or an up you know, some sort of upstanding or doctor mm-hmm. standing citizen, he sees himself as better than. Right. But he's also that's the sociopath too, right. a bit of a narcissist. There's some narcissism in there as well. Um but he shows up at the beginning of the film to let Gregory Peck know that he is here. In this town, he plans to stay here, and he plans to... He doesn't say it in so many words, but he basically is like, I'm going to rape your wife and your daughter. Right. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. I am going to destroy your family. 
bye. <laughs> and then he takes off. And uh, Gregory Peck goes home and it's like, you need to, you know, stay away from people. And at, at that point, I'm like, maybe the first stop is go to the police station and get a picture of him and show him to your wife and daughter. Because... You've they you now know that they are targets and they don't know what they're targets of and I, that bothers me. I'm just like well, in the beginning, it doesn't seem like he t- he's apprehensive about Max, Katie, because he's he saw what he did to this mm-hmm. woman, mm-hmm. Um, and he talks to the police almost right away. Mm-hmm. But their recommendation is well, or their idea is you know he just got out of prison, he's not going to want to go back. Yeah, he uh, get a noisy dog. Yeah, well, he's got a, they've mm. already, he's already got a dog. Right. Which is killed almost immediately. We don't see how it is poisoned. It is very early in the, in the episode, though, or in the, in the film. Um, it runs out to the street, and then it yelps, and then it falls over, and then it turns out there was strychnine in the hamburger, and we didn't see who threw it. It was probably from a car on the street. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no proof that it was right. Max. And, you know, he says, my dog is loud, but they couldn't do anything. So that dog was, like, that was an innocent animal that didn't, like, it wasn't a Doberman. It wasn't, it wasn't really a protection animal other than some sort of little alarm. Uh, Yeah, and so, yeah, that's, and he's like, you need to do something about Katie to the police chief. And the police chief is like, well, you know, he's you know, he's just got out of prison. We can probably pick him up for vagrancy. They pick him up and we don't see all the times that they pick him up, but they end up talking about it. He gets picked up for vagrancy. He gets picked, but he has a place. He gets picked up for, I think, um, intoxication in public for after he leaves the bar. Like they just wait outside of the bar that they know he's at, um, to pick him up for that. They go into one of the bars he's at and arrest him for, I don't even, I think they're just like, we want to check your parole, which like, that is that is a legal thing that they can do, but it uh, is it right? No, it's that's the thing. As they're doing this, I'm like, you guys are fucking yourselves because if he has, and, and we've heard him say, I studied law in in prison. prison, so he knows how to tow right up to the line, and he knows what they're going to do to him, and he knows he has recourse against that, and he right. does have recourse and get recourse because he gets an attorney. Because guess what? If you've got money, you can get an attorney in this country. That's how it works. I don't know where he's getting his money. That is confusing. The sale of a house, I believe, is what okay, it was. Okay, that's what it was because he he's a, got a right. good amount of money. He's he not has money in the bank because if not, they can run him up for vagrancy. Yeah. Which is interesting because um, Mitchum himself, who was infamous for getting in trouble with the law over everything from public vagrancy to... Uh, marijuana possession. Mm-hmm. He uh, he was arrested in Atlanta uh, for public vagrancy and was sentenced to work on a chain gang for a while. Because he was there and just didn't have any he money? He was just there and didn't have any... So I, I wonder... Well, and those, those right. laws, in, especially in the 60s... Or in the South, also... Yeah, they, exactly, the 60s in the South right. before the Civil Rights Movement came through and, yeah, those were slave roundup laws. Right. That's what those are. Um, and you can use them on white people. <laughs> turns out, yeah. It turns out. So, um, yeah, so he's skirting, you know, he's walking right up to that line and skirting it and he's smirking at 
Bowden over mm-hmm. the line. He's like, you see what I'm doing and you can't do shit about it. Right. Uh, uh, Bowden hires a private detective at the behest of Dutton because Dutton's like, we've done what we can do and he's right. Like, he brings in yeah. a lawyer and he's like, we're going to sue all of y'all. We're going to disbar this motherfucker. Like, it gets... Uh, and it, it ramps up because Bowden stops sort of hiding behind the cops and starts doing some active things against Katie. Right. Uh, that are ill thought out and not well executed. <laughs> um, so he hires Charlie Severs, that's Tully Savalas, to track him, trail him. Tra- he trails him to a hotel with this young woman, uh, Diane Taylor. Uh, and we do see them in the car talking where she's like, you're the lowest of the low. Um, and sometimes that's, I think, comforting to a woman to know right. she can't get any she lower. Get any and I'm lower. just like, woof. And then, you know, you see her in bed in lingerie. So mm. they've clearly done something. And then he stalks in after her like a cat. And she is like, ooh. And then you, I kind of thought that they were going to break in on them. But no, when they break in, the time jump is weird. Because um, it looks like they're going in right as he's attacking right. her. But some time has passed. And she is there beat up, uh, clothes torn, bruises on her face, hair disheveled, uh, sort of looking out into space, and um, he is nowhere to be found. He went out the back or the front, whatever, whichever way out of this room. Because this is a like a motel. Or a, right. It's a very weird chintzy kind of motel. It is with very. The, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of brick and yuck, brack and, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, and, uh, Savalas, uh, the PI character bri- sort of bribes his way in. Cause the cops are like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do here. And he bribes his way in and is like, look, we can protect you. And, um, if you just testify against him, we can get him locked up. You know, he got eight years the last time he did this. And she's mm. like, well, what happens after eight years? And not only that, everyone will know what he's done to her. And apparently, yeah. one of the things that works well in this film is that it's never made explicit what he's doing. Only that these women wind up demoralized and humiliated when he's done with them. Yeah. So you know he's talking to them in right. addition to beating them. He right. is worming his way into their brains <clears throat> in myriad ways. But also she understands. So... He probably was talking to her about Bowden and what he's doing, right. right? That is, he is taking revenge on the last witness. Mm-hmm. You're going to be able to lock him up for eight years? Great. So in eight years, I've got to right. wait for this dude to show up and finish me off? How? Well, like, no? <laughs> like, One of the stories that he tells Bowden is how he got revenge on his wife. Mm-hmm. after um, being locked up because his wife wrote him essentially she met somebody else and married them yeah. while he was in prison Yeah, and he gets out and forces her to write a Dear John letter to her current husband he kidnaps and abuse, sexually abuses and tortures her for a week Yeah, and then in I think the line that even as a kid when I first saw this movie I was far too young to actually get what was right, going what was on happening right 
but he said he sent her home dressed just in her nightgown and a fair uh, a fair chance to work her way home is the way he put it. Right. Which is just revolting. It's yeah. like yeah. God, you're disgusting. Yeah. And he uh, But he also doesn't see these women as people. Right. He they sees are it. possessions of his and, to be right. played with as he sees fit. And it's the it's he sees them as things to it's weird because again, if he was he is a man who can attract women on his own merits. He's a person who has enough char- whatever it's not else. about sex. But it's the power dynamic it's that he likes. It's just like really yeah. humiliating them. And it turns out, not just women, he loves terrifying men too. Yeah, he does it. He does, he's doing it to Bowden. He's right. getting off on that as well. Um, he wants to do it through the use of his... The, the, his female mm. family members. Right. But he will do it through the use of his dog and his job and, you know, right. whatever else. Um, so after um, Diane doesn't come through for them, uh, he just straight up hires three dudes to... Bowden does. Yeah, hires Bowden does. Mm-hmm. To to beat up Casey, uh, Katie that, uh, to convince him to leave town. And I'm like, you should have just hired a fucking assassin, you idiot. Uh, because Katie knows how to fucking fight. Also, he's huge. He's a yeah. big dude, uh, and he uh, he gets the better of all three of them, and then convinces them to talk. They out Bowden, and that's when Bowden uh, is threatened with disbarment from Katie and his lawyer. Just like you're harassing this man. There's no um. You have no proof against him. That's the key, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that he's a good guy. It's that they don't have proof against him. But now he has proof against Peck's character. Uh, at which point he basically is like, well, I don't have anything to lose. Now there's a scene where uh, he chases Sam Bowden's daughter, whose name is Nancy. She's 14. Uh, she's dressed very much like Small Wonder from the early 80s uh, and uh, is not sexualized in this version. She is still very much a child. She is very... I always... And you can correct me if you think I'm mm-hmm. wrong. She's not sexualized, but she looks like she's on the cusp of that. Mm-hmm. She's wearing very short shorts, deck shorts, which, again, would not be... That still to me means child. Yeah, but, but again, yes, it would be if it was on a. It would look childlike, but the fact that she's beginning to turn into a young woman, it sort of puts it in a different context, and she has the well, and especially the fact that you know that Katie is looking at her right. as a sexual object, and so the, there's that kind of feeling. She's not sexualized, but she they do a good job of making it look like. She's going to start exploring this soon, and this is why one of the reasons why Katie is sniffing after her. I don't. I don't know that she. Looks, I don't think. I don't know. read that. I don't read her going to explore anything soon. I don't think. No, no, that. I, don't I don't mean think she's with, there. Like the one of the issues I have with the remake is that uh, Juliet Lewis's character is attracted to Katie physically. Yes, and this. Girl is she's not. seeking that mm-hmm. out. She's seeking that danger out. This girl is not. No, she no. doesn't know what it is but to be attracted to somebody yet. I, I think that I think. when I say exploring it, I don't mean that she's exploring it in terms that she wants to go and have sex with somebody. I mean that she's beginning to understand that she hasn't, like, she's still innocent enough, but she's going to start understanding soon from the way that she's dressing and things that 
she can get men's attention or boys' attention. Usually boys her age, I think, is what they're aiming at. Yeah, I don't. Because she does have a, a couple of seconds, like when she's uh, working on the deck of her boat, and she's saying hi to her friends, and yeah. they're inviting her out. And it's like, this seems very healthy and very normal. Right, but not. I don't think it's sexualized. And yeah, she's mm. wearing short shorts, but guess what? If you want to buy shorts for a girl at this time, those are the shorts you're going to buy. Right. Okay. Like, there, it's not like a choice between all these lengths that she went short to show herself off. Mm-hmm. It's, you want to buy shorts for a 14-year-old, this is the length of short you get. Period. Mm-hmm. And that, that's still true. We hypersexualize these little girls and then are like, well, why are they wearing that? Well, because it's literally impossible for them to wear anything else unless I make it myself, which... That's not going to work. <laughs> like, yeah, it's um, little jeggings for babies. I We don't need to get into it. But I don't, yeah, she's very much still a child. Right, and she is portrayed as a child. And yeah. I, um, I think that's what makes the entire thing just really disturbing. Yeah, there's a scene where, yes, she's on the, they have a boat. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, they do. The Bowden family has a boat. It's a small boat. He wants a bigger boat, but it's a small boat. And uh, they're going to go out on the water for a holiday um, or, you know, mm-hmm. to, to – it looks like a bunch of people out there. This is maybe a holiday weekend, Labor Day right. or something like – Memorial Day, something like that. Um, and Katie appears on the dock drinking a beer. I was like, how is that? How is that okay? Um, and, and gawking at the daughter at which point – and that's when uh, Sam – does uh, punch Katie for the first mm-hmm. time, does uh, physically assault him. Uh, it's not a good idea. It's not a good look. I understand why he did it. It was dumb. <laughs> it was dumb. He needed to walk the fuck away from him because it just made him look worse. And all that Katie is like, look, look, this guy's trying to physically assault and me. And he Whoa. doesn't swing back, which right. is, yeah. Uh, so they put... <laughs> Sam understands now that Max is not going to stop, and he's not able to stop him with all of the the resources that he has. So he's like, "Well, let's lure him out into the middle of nowhere and kill him." Like that's right. that's basically what happens. Um, what are they going to lure him out with? His wife and daughter, because sure, why wouldn't you make your kid and wife bait? Uh, and I was not clear. I don't think that he really makes them bait because he gives the he works struggles hard to give the impression that he's sending them someplace else and that he's going to be by himself um, on this houseboat. And then of course mm-hmm. they come back and he discovers them. So if you remember, he actually he leaves them. No, he. Oh no no he goes out to pretend that he's out on. He goes, he's supposed to go to Atlanta. Right. He's supposed to, he's, what the, the gambit is, I, Sam Bowden, mm-hmm. am going to go to Atlanta to deal with some uh, legal issues or whatever. Some, oh, yes, you're right. Right? Yeah. And I'm sending my family to Cape Fear, which mm-hmm. is uh, very funny, um, to hang out on the houseboat. Right. And um, it, it, they made it look like he got on the plane, he got off mm-hmm. the plane. So he does fly to Atlanta and then he drives right, okay. to yes, right. where the family is, presuming that Max will go to where the family is and he will intercept them outside of the houseboat where the, his family is staying and kill him. And he's got uh, an off-duty cop who's signed up for uh, murder duty, which is... 
unsurprising, I guess. It seems wild, but I'm like, yeah, I believe that there are several cops that I've seen out on the street that if you ask them to come kill this ex-con who's chasing your wife, they would be on board for that. So they're hiding in the swamp. Katie is on to them that they are there. And he sneaks up behind uh, the off-duty cop, Kersik, and strangles him, mm-hmm. dumps him in the swamp. And that is uh, alligator food now. No. And that's when Sam realizes, I'm on my own, <laughs> and my wife and daughter are out here. Who knows? <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, bitch, because you didn't come. You sent three dudes to beat him up. And he beat all of, like, he right. he destroyed them. You came out here with one other guy. What? More men, not less men. What do you, like, what do you, if three doesn't work, you go for five. You don't go for right. two. Like, that's, what do you, no, I understand. This group of men is a literal vigilante posse. Like, we're right. trying to kill somebody, so maybe you can't find five well, guys. he also... Is depending very largely on the idea that he has a gun he and does. that he has the element of surprise, neither right. of which work for him very no. well. Um, so Katie um, eludes Sam and sort of sets the boat adrift where the, right. the family is. And he attacks Peggy, Mrs. Bowden, the wife, uh, which draws out Sam. Uh-huh. Who he can't hide anymore because his wife is actively being attacked, and um, then uh, Katie leaves Peggy to go attack Nancy because they've separated. Mm-hmm. Nancy is somewhere else, um, and then Sam realizes what has happened and he follows him, and then they fight on the riverbank. Um, Gregory Peck, Sam Bowden, manages to reach his gun. That he had dropped more than once, I'm pretty sure. And he does shoot Katie. He wounds him. And Katie says, we'll finish the job. Like, don't just right. wound me. Because I will never fucking stop. <laughs> and Bowden's like, Ooh, no, I'm going to put you in prison for the rest of your life. And I'm like, well, you can't guarantee that. Oh, yes, you can, actually. Because he did just kill that cop. Oops. Right, exactly. You did just kill the man that I hired to come out here and kill you, but that's a secret. <laughs> so, because uh, technically I'm like, mm, is that a little bit of stand your ground? It's, I don't know whose ground the swamp is, but uh, he does go ahead and say, so then he says he's going to put him in prison for the rest of his life to count the years, the months, the hours. And then the Bowden family are together on the boat. Traveling with the police back to port. And we don't see Katie anymore. You're going continue. to live a long life in a cage. Yeah, in I a like that. <laughs> so that's the movie. And uh Yeah, it's 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 interesting because oh my god. So I was looking at this, uh, I'm just scrolling through the Wikipedia Page and although the word rape was entirely removed from the script before shooting, mm-hmm. because of course it was, 
The film still enraged the censors, who worried that there was continuous threat of sexual assault on a child. Right. Yeah, that's literally the, the whole point of I, the movie. The first time I saw this film um, was watching the late, 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 late... I've always had insomnia, um, and this was when I was in, like in middle school, I think, and... I was watching the late, 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 late movie. It was like three in the morning or something. And that scene with Robert Mitchum and Polly Bergen, who plays Sam Bowden's wife, yes. on the boat, I it was astounding because I'd never seen that kind of acting before. Yeah. Apparently the scene was completely improvised. Oh, interesting. And at some point... And this is her return to filmmaking. She hadn't made a movie in eight right. years. And so the the director just told them we're going to shoot them in the kitchen and for some reason the egg thing, cracking the eggs and rubbing it on her was, was completely improvised as well. Um, but they were both so in, involved in that scene that she got hurt because he's physically slamming her around. Well. Yes, he is, yeah. And at another point, he cut his hand. Uh-huh. And so she goes, they interrupted eventually because we're covered in blood and egg yolk. Right, like <laughs> we're disgusting. Right. Like at some point, somebody's got to, okay. <laughs> but, but she goes, the entire set was like, holy, what is he going to do? What is he? Like? She also probably, I hope that they spoke. Did they speak beforehand or? I don't, I didn't get that part of it. What's really, uh, what stands out is just the fact that uh, whether they knew each other's boundaries or not, what right. they're going to do in this scene, that right. she didn't feel threatened with this whole crew of people around. There's that. Again, and you, also I uh-huh. think Robert Mitchum, the man. Right. Probably, I hope, put Polly Bergen, the woman, right. at ease. So that Max Katie, the character, and was it Peggy? Right. Peggy Bowden, the character, could have this interaction, and then nobody has to have therapy afterwards. <laughs> Watching that scene, though, it really it's affecting because yeah. she is definitely panicking. Yeah. And he. Oh, and a lot of that is I don't know what's going to happen next. Right. Yeah. And and he's feeding off of her panic mm-hmm. and. Uh, I remember, yeah, that scene just made an impression on me to where whatever the other... Because there's other flaws in the film where there's jumps in logic or there's even like a dream scene at one point. Yeah, there is. It's very strange. Like, Why are we doing this? Right, this I don't, doesn't make any sense. I, it makes sense in a novel. It right. doesn't make sense in the film. And that was uh, understanding the difference between the novel and the film. Yeah. I think that I, w- I was uh, listening to some criticism about the film saying, well, Sam... Uh, Bowden is the main character of the book and he is uh, and Max Cady comes in and only meets with him once or twice Okay, and is this sort of shadowy presence in the book they are both military veterans oh interesting and um, which may be true in the film too but they don't right. talk about it well they deliberately took that out that reference okay. out because they you know they the do not want the... well no no they don't want a a representative of the armed forces being represented as raping a 14-year-old girl right. or attempting to, which is what he's supposed to do in this The story. reason the Dirty Dozen was right. uh, sort of pushed off by the right. armed forces. And shot in we're England, not, by the way. Yeah, we're right. not, so, we're the, we don't condone this, yeah. Right, so the thing is that... Um, the And the English censors, as a matter of fact, when this film was released... Yeah. Uh, they cut about six minutes altogether, so all and the... And it's sub- still X-rated. Right. Um... 
Was it one of the British nasties? Was it one of the I'm movies? I'm not that sure they... if it was. I know the video nasties came later when they released videotapes and or when the video generation happened and yeah. there were just films you could not get you in just England. Just couldn't get in England. Yeah. And so people were like, I learned yeah. about that from Blake uh, Blake Track because right. David Sims was raised in England. Um, and so yeah, he talks about how you just couldn't just couldn't get it. And this was released um, on home video in 1992. Who knows? Coincidental, I think, probably with the release of Martin Scorsese's Presumably, take on yeah. it. Um, it was released on VHS on March 1st, 1992, mm-hmm. and on May 14th, 1992, it was released on Laserdisc. <laughs> Here's the thing, though, y'all. Laserdisc was awesome. So heavy. So, so heavy. So beautiful. Just a big, shiny record with a movie on it. What? Right. And, and <laughs> I have to say that Laserdisc, the quality of Laserdisc was amazing. It really was amazing. It was. That's However, the thing. It, it was, was not sustainable no. for most people. No, they were so big. They were so heavy. They were you couldn't have a whole collection mm-hmm. and a record collection. You had to pick one. Right. And um, uh, they were so expensive. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I, I just that's like I but, said. Yeah. Go that ahead. scene stood out to me. The that scene is in the you, you remember Bra- Bravo scariest scenes. Right. Um, countdown, it's number 36. I can imagine. Because yeah. when I was a kid watching this, I was up by myself. And Our like, scariest movie moments. In 2004, they right. released that. And they, they'll they air it on, like, it, during Halloween. Halloween and stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and do that. It's like a five-hour countdown, I think, right. something like that. And it's, it's it's a good set of films. I'd like them to update it since they haven't done it since 2004. Right. Um, and there's been some scary shit since 2004. But, yeah, it was uh, number... Number thirty six, uh, and then Max Cady is number twenty eight on the hundred uh, heroes and villains, the AFI right. hundred heroes and villains. I see. I see. I think that. Oh, the other thing I was going to mention, the criticism that I was watching mm-hmm. was that Max Cady only interrupts intermittently in the book. Yeah, and that makes him more of a menace, and that he was this sort of trained uh, military officer and all that. Right, but you're um, getting all that information from the book. Right, and so this is though what I would disagree with is that I don't think mm-hmm. I think that as the the author of this particular this YouTube commentator goes on to say is that well he's more frightening that way. Uh, they're different things. Yes, but what I mean to say is more effective about this Max Cady. Yeah, is the fact that he has studied the law and mm-hmm. he knows how to stay on the right side of yep. it because apparently the the Max Cady in the book is like an atavism. He's some sort of Stone Age throwback. Who's pure id? He's, He's just, just pure id. He's raping, not smart. Killing, whatever. This guy is smart. Right. This guy's smart. He knows how to stay He's on the right side of the law. The smart, like he's not like we want to romanticize uh, killers, uh, uh, serial killers. He's not Hannibal Lecter. Being like yeah. geniuses. It's not that. He understands the parameters in which he can maneuver, mm-hmm. and he maneuvers within them. Right. He also has 1962 on his side. What what the power that women didn't have exactly, you know, um, being raped in 1962 destroys your whole life if fi- people find out about it because you will be blamed. Your husband will leave you. Like I mean, it's yeah, not necessarily right. No, but culturally, that is certainly a legitimate fear. And if your husband leaves you, you know what you can't have a home. A bank account, a car, it's, a job. Right. Like, 
it caused ostracism. I'm sure that it would cause the end of, well, not always, but sort of the end or the a real interruption in whatever kind of relationship you have with your husband. Yeah. Um, and uh, Which is still obviously still true. Right. Um, even just getting through whatever the trauma is to get back to any kind of quote-unquote normal sex. Uh-huh sexual intimacy right with anyone let alone you know and, and if it's something like a home break-in where it happened in front of your husband there's all kinds of yeah there's you know, layers why didn't this. you save me you know uh, it, all kinds of terrible yeah. things this, that go along with it this yeah. character is max katie is a great villain but you almost don't want to say that because he's so thoroughly repulsive. I mean, here's a yeah. person with no redeeming qualities whatsoever. But at the same time, I'm like, I definitely have met men like this. Yeah. I definitely have met people like this. Not necessarily rapists, mm-hmm. but people who manipulate the people around them. Right. Um, because they don't see them as people, right? Like, they see them as toys. And this or is inconsequential. Yeah. Like it's one of the two. I you're not another person that I have to care about. You're something I'm going to interact with according to my whims, or someone I'm not going to interact with because I don't give a fuck about you. That's right. it. Those are the two kind of interactions that they have. And I definitely know people like that. So it's like it's a very true villain, which ooh, makes it kind of worse. Well, that's kind of yeah. That's that's what. <laughs> What works for it is that this, his, his motivations are really simple, and his, he does have a, like this this gripe that he has about you locked me up four years and how much there's a great speech he has about how much are you going to pay me out when yeah. at one point Gregory Peck wants to just uh, agrees to what his wife says. Because uh, she stops him from pulling out a gun and just hunting him down. Just hunting him down. He does want to do that at one point. And it's like, uh, dude. But um, the uh, the idea that you're not going to ever pay me enough to make up for what I went through for those years in prison. Um, I know that in Scorsese's remake, he went so far as to say, well, Sam Bowden actually fabricated evidence to get him behind bars because he couldn't create the evidence or because he couldn't find the evidence. Yes. So then De Niro's version of the character has an actual gripe, but he's still disgusting. Yes. Yeah, right. And uh, And it's hard because, mm -hmm. I mean, it's the same, we're talking about the same kind of stuff that we saw in Touch of Evil, right? Right. But I know he's guilty. Right, exactly. So what do you do? Yeah. As the the quote-unquote good person, the person on the side of right, right, whatever that is, you know that person is guilty, whether you do or not, what do you do? Um, yeah. I, I, um, I like this version a little bit better because Nick Nolte's take on the character is an unfaithful husband mm. who... And there's some things that... There's some things that work better in the remake. For instance, the woman that he that Max Katie abuses is the coworker is Nick Nolte's coworker who falls in love with him. Oh Lord. 
and, but what he does to her, it's like it's explicit and it didn't right. need to be. Right. You well, know. Scorsese films are explicit when right. they don't need to be. That's kind of the whole thing right. with him. Yeah. It's like, uh, I appreciate the fact that he does really realistic uses of violence, but there are times when less is more. And, yeah, yeah. And I didn't need to see this woman be assaulted yeah, like, that way. I am glad that this is the version that we watched, because mm-hmm. I don't really want to watch the other version right. at this point in my life. And there's I mean, also... I'd do it if I had to. I'm going to watch the fucking Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. don't fucking want to. <laughs> I'm going to watch the Clockwork Orange. Like, yeah, and there's... I'm hopeful mm-hmm. that... My fear of that film was overblown by the age at which I saw it, right, and exactly. I will not. Well, I will sometimes, not be. like with this film, there's a couple of others. Uh, Carnival of Souls is another one that I talk mm-hmm. about a lot, where it's just it sticks with you sometimes when you see it at the wrong age and you're yeah. not able to process why it's frightening. Why it's to you. scary to you? Yeah, but it is frightening to you, yeah. and you you're just. I had, you know, the issue for the longest time watching Robert Mitchum in a movie until I started seeing him in films that were... That's the thing. I've still right. only ever seen him as a terrifying, terrifying man. Right. Do I believe that he was a good guy? Sure. Well, that's he, what I hear. He apparently had... <laughs> he was a sort of a prankster when he was a kid. He got into a lot of trouble um, as a young person. You know, he was uh, he was kicked out of school for getting to a fist fight with his principal at one point. Um his, the, just the opening of his IMDb it, uh, biography is yeah. fucking, well, who wrote this shit? I don't know. It what? literally says, Robert Mitchum was an underrated American leading man of enormous ability who sublimated his talents beneath, beneath an air of disinterest. <laughs> oh, okay. well, yeah. He, he was like that. when <laughs> It's he was... not untrue, mm-hmm. but like, just the idea that the first line was, you don't think as highly of this motherfucker as you should. <laughs> you should. If there's a great line that he had about himself where it's like he mentioned there was two kinds of acting he did. One was on a horse and one was off a horse because he did a lot of westerns. <laughs> horse <laughs> acting? Right. When he's asked what it was like working with Ava Gardner, he goes, addictive. And like that was his only That's comment. Funny. But he apparently from having, there's a really interesting book written by Bob Simmons who is uh, the stunt double for uh, Sean Connery and all the early Bond films, including Goldfinger. Uh-huh. And he talked about doing a movie with Robert Mitchum, and he said that you just wind up hanging out with him because he was such a fun guy. He's out there getting drinks with the crew. He's you know, smoking a little reefer with people. You know, he's talking to the fans. He was just that kind of guy. And so when I look at stories about him, it reminds me a lot of, as I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, Listening to stories about Matthew McConaughey having beach parties and everyone's drinking uh, too much and no. having a good time. It's like that kind of energy. He uh, carefully maintained a facade of indifference, always lazily insisting he made movies so he could get laid, score some pot, and make money. <laughs> right. He cared nothing about art. Meanwhile, he's a saxophone player and a poet. So right. he he's an artist. Yes, he he was, is an artist, right? He, was a, he at one point was, um, he was a professional boxer. So he had genuine mm. tough guy credentials. Uh, he mentioned in this one that in that fight scene with Gregory Peck that Peck missed his mark and accidentally slugged him. And he's like, well, I understood it was a mistake, but I I maintained my, uh, my composure, finished the scene, and I went back to my trailer and just sort of like leaned over. Because again, two really big guys yeah. just like wailing on each other. He's uh, one of four actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have two villainous roles ranked in the AFI's right. greatest uh, heroes and villains. 
Uh, Max Katie uh, is 28, who Evan Terry Powell in The Night of the Hunter is 29. Not just two villains, but back to back in the top 30. Right. The other three are Jack Nicholson, Betty Davis, and Faye Dunaway. Um, and then he, yeah, he's voted the 60, 61st greatest movie star of all time by Entertainment Weekly. Uh, here's the thing that's unsurprising. Michael Madsen called Mitchum his role model and inspiration to take really? up acting. I'm like, really? Because you look just like him. Not really, but kind of. Does. He's, he's projecting <laughs> he's Robert Mitchum really energy. Mitchum right? vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, was named twenty number twenty three greatest actor in the fifty greatest screen legends by the AFI, which is pretty, pretty good. Yeah, he's he's a he's a very interesting person, and he, um, I, yeah, it's we're looking last week at someone like um, Kirk Douglas who is constantly self promoting, and then you get a guy like Robert Mitchum who isn't, but just has the respect of all of his peers. Yeah, I'm interested. What's The Big Sleep? The Big Sleep is a Raymond Chandler story. So I see that he died one day before his Big Sleep co-star, James Stewart. Mm -hmm. And I would like to watch a movie with Robert Mitchum and James Stewart in it. Jimmy Stewart is my favorite. I want to hug him. (laughs) So, okay, I'll get off this IMDb page. So that is Cape Fear. Thrilling? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yes, it is. Uh... Next week, we're going to talk about something... Completely different. Now for something completely different. Completely different. With 1999's M. Night Shyamalan's first twisty beast, uh, The Sixth Sense, with Haley Joel Osment, Tony Collette, and... Olivia Williams. Bruce Willis, is who I was going to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's really a three-hander. She's in four scenes. Anyways, we'll talk about it next week. Before we talk about The Sixth Sense, though, do you have anything that you would like to recommend to our lovely listeners? It's probably the same thing that you're going to recommend. Uh, probably. We watched Wakanda Forever. Wakanda Forever. <laughs> um, we went at 8.30 a.m. on a Saturday like it was our job. Right. <laughs> And that wound up, and I didn't know what to make of it because I'd read some things about the film, and and I think my favorite was looking at a, watching a YouTube for a fan who the, his first take on the movie was he was very confused by it, he was very sad by, it, and the second take he did, he went immediately to the next showing, and suddenly was raving about it. Got you. And I think that um, that left me a little confused about what the film was going to be like. Mm. But it really is remarkable. It is. I have. I have thoughts. Uh-huh. Um. That I'm not going to get into because spoilers. Because right. I don't think you have to see the movie the weekend it comes out to be a fan and not get spoiled. So I'm not going to spoil mm-hmm. it. It is beautiful. Yeah. Um. You will cry, at least three <laughs> times. I cried at the Marvel flip at the beginning because they did dedicate that entire thing to Chadwick Boseman. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, here we go. <laughs> like well, right off the bat. Although that wasn't the first thing you see. I was expecting that to they there was a cold open in this one, right. which I was surprised about. But um I thought it was beautiful. 
Um, I think it's going to win all of the production awards the way that the first one did because the costuming and the art design and the production design are stunning, both for Wakanda and for Taklon, which mm-hmm. is where Namor comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked a lot of that. The speaking of Mayan, like literally speaking a dead language, which was, I like, I like a dead language. Give me an, an indigenous language. Um, I'll save the other things I want to say for later because, like I said, I don't want to mm, spoil. No, but no. I had real conflicting thoughts and feelings while watching right. large swaths, swaths of this movie. As a colonizer, as a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I will say about that. Um, also, give me more of that lesbian couple. A, a pat on the hand and a thank there, you, my love, was a bummer, dude. There <laughs> is um, a kind of a, a new... Uh, I don't know exactly how to refer to it. A new kind of trope, which is, oh, I didn't know that that couple was lesbian or gay kind of vibe to modern films. There was, uh, at the end of the last Star Wars film, there's a kiss between two women that happens when the the Empire's finally foiled, and you're like, oh, those two. And there was that similar feeling this way, where... Again, we're not going to go into it, but hey, they exist. They exist. And I'm like, yeah, those right. are definitely lesbians, and they definitely love each other. You could let them have more than, like I said, it's like a pat on the on like a mm-hmm. hand on the shoulder, a pat on the hand, and a thank you, my love, right. from one of them. But they're, that's it. And I'm just like, and it's in passing at the end. And I'm just like... Yeah, it's, it's, stop doing that. Right. Stop spending in the denouement just going. Oh, and also, there's a lesbian couple. Like, let them be lesbians all the way through the movie. Especially because one of them was a fairly pivotal character in the film. Uh, yeah, I just have. Yeah, thoughts. it's it's um, they did a really good job of of acknowledging the fact that there was a real impact left when Bozeman you know, joined, was uh, asked by Heath Ledger to join him and Bruce Lee and River Phoenix. Oh, or whatever. <laughs> right. Oh, no, we're too sad. <laughs> whatever early star afterlife that James Dean and Marilyn Monroe went to. Right. Uh, but the way that it's dealt with and the maturity of the characters in the story. Yeah. Especially, and the lack of maturity right. in some cases. Which yes, is... I really enjoyed watching yeah. Shuri's character come to the forefront the way she did. Mm-hmm. Because essentially in the first film, she was a comic relief. Yeah. A lot of the time. And she's a ki- you got to remember, she's a kid. Right. She may be the lead scientist. She's a child. I mean, she's not a child. She was, what, 19? Right. The so character was like 19 in the first movie. She's Young, and certainly too young to be dealing with a lot and of she's had to deal with. De Noc Huerta, um, the oh, actor yeah. who plays uh, Namor. Namor. Uh, he, 
Yeah, which is interesting because they came up with an alternate explanation, <laughs> an alternate for, what explanation his name for his from. name, which is really interesting. Yeah, which is really good. But there's um, he is doing a great job because my brother used to love Prince Namor and used yeah. to have some of the comics. Yeah. And he's a really complicated character because he's just like, he's all for his own people. And yeah. if you're not one of them, then he's suspicious of you and he's likely to turn his back on you. But he's very loyal to who he's supposed to protect. And it's, I, I, uh, I was wondering how they were going to manage this because just a couple of years ago, we got a very loud and silly version of um, Aquaman. That Jason Momoa did. I enjoyed it. It was too much, I think, at the same time, though. It was, it was like spectacle on top of spectacle on top of spectacle. And so, I, and, and Amber, Amber heard on what looked like, I, I loved her scenes. She looked like she was on a tilt board. She you know? was. She <laughs> couldn't of, move in that she outfit. She couldn't move. And then she's just like, she's stationary. There's close-ups of her. And then her double is running across the desert and they cut to her. Like, almost stationary. <sighs> oh, that was dangerous. And you like, just wait. saw the Forever Purge. Do you remember him in that? Um, yes, I did. And he was oh. very good. Which is also not the movie you should see the night before the elections. But it was a really pointedly political and very pointedly um it was yeah i've wanted to watch the first purge and the forever purge for a while and i just am not at a place where i can watch a movie where the villains are people yeah well it's also i'm just i'm not really violent exactly anyhow i'm not not there i'm sorry i took over so what was your recommendation that okay okay there you said uh yeah i'll leave it with black panther y'all just go see black panther yeah I know, movie theaters, but, you know, go at 8.30. There's less people than <laughs> there was. I know it was a pretty full theater. Uh, so next week, we're going to talk about The Sixth Sense. All six senses. Uh, all six, six senses. Well, probably not five of them, actually. Just only only the one. Maybe, maybe two. Uh, and until then, if you have questions or comments or concerns, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can... Find us on Facebook at Latecomers Pod, or by searching Latecomers Podcast in the search bar. And yeah, we're still on Twitter <sighs> for the moment at Latecomers Pod. I'm never over there. We, you know, it's dying. It's a hot mess over there, and I will not be paying eight dollars. So, until next week, I would like to remind you to please, please, please take your medicines. And we'd like to remind you better, better late, late than, than never. never.